we are in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We've just finished the story of the man born blind, which is in chapter 10. And now we're going to move on into chapter 11, where we have the story of the raising of Lazarus. So I'll start us off, get us a running start out of chapter 3, beginning at verse 40, because that sets the place. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him, and they were saying, John performed no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and they believed in him there. Now, there's always been debate, again, and we had it earlier on, as to where John was baptizing. Was it south uh, uh, on the Jordan River, south close to Jerusalem, near Jericho, or was it north just south of the Sea of Galilee? Was there a Bethany beyond the Jordan River uh, on the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee, as has been often suspected by many church fathers, and therefore the baptismal site would have been just south of the Sea of Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee filters into the Jordan River? Or, or is there a site on the Jordan River near Jericho uh, that is qualifying for this, even though Bethany is 15 miles west of there and 2,000 feet up? Hmm. So the questions uh, orbit around the location of this are not settled easily. However, we have a couple of hints in what we're going to read tonight. Nevertheless, this says that Jesus went away to, to beyond the Jordan to where the baptisms had been occurring and the people there believed in him and said John talked about him. John talked about him and everything that John had said had come true. Chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. Now, right there we got a problem. Because, quite frankly, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. It's articulated in the past tense, and yet in the narrative, in John's gospel, that hasn't happened yet. But it does happen in this. Yeah, it does. It happens in chapter 12. But it, well, it, it hasn't happened yet in John's gospel. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But that's not the way they thought of the story. Though. Right. No, it's not. But it's just another illustration. Yet another illustration of the non-chronological thematic or topical construction of the gospel. This is a, actually a concrete example of it. Where the past tense reference is coming before the event is referenced itself. But, but it's in the past tense when it was being written. Yes, the I event ha was a historic event. It was an event that people in the community would have known even. Everything so, was in the past tense when it was written. So it's, it's, actually, it's actually not a surprise. Although, when you first read it, you go, wait a minute, did I miss an episode somewhere? Exactly. That's what I'm looking <laughs> did at. Did I miss an episode in the series? Because the, that's an event we haven't seen yet here. Although, we remember something quite a lot like it from Luke's Gospel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we remember Mary and Martha from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. He was just identifying her to people that knew all the stories anyway. Who knew these stories to begin yeah. with. It's just interesting that he did it that way instead of over here in 12 saying Mary's the one whose brother Lazarus yeah. right. It's Like, it's, like it's, a new white chapter, basically. It's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. It is interesting. In, in modern, we would say Mary is the one who will anoint. I mean, that, that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the way they Who would anoint or will be yeah. anointing. Yeah. <laughs> As an aside to the audience in yeah. a play, that's how yeah. that would work. Yeah. Who will be anointed. Um, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with her perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. In verse 3, Curie um, aide un phileus as thenai. 
quite literally, he whom you have brotherly love for. Remember, there are three basic words in Greek that we that biblically based, biblically used words, three words in the Greek of the New Testament that are used to articulate love. There's eros, which is sexual or physical love. There's phileus or phileo, which is brotherly love. And then there's agape or agapao, which is divine or heavenly love. And here, the word used is, is phileus, phileo, brotherly love that is referenced here. Now, how about, has Lazarus been introduced previously? Nope. Has Lazarus has not appeared previously. So the, this relationship is simply assumed that everybody who's hearing this or reading this is going to know who this Lazarus is, who's going to know who this Mary and Martha is. In fact, the only other reference to a Lazarus in the New Testament is, of course, the story of the man who, the, the, the man who dies, the Lazarus who dies over in Luke's gospel, in Luke 16, 19 through 31. And then the rich, the rich man who dies, that story. That's the other Lazarus that we know of. There's going to be an interesting connection, by the way, between that story in Luke and this story here, which we'll look at when we finish reading the story. So let's keep going. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Huh? I mean, at the, in mine it says, illness and death of Lazarus here at the top of the page. <laughs> yeah, the so death the, of the, the John. Did Jesus not talk to the editor here? I mean, exactly. come on. This illness <laughs> does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay. So at first you go, wait a minute, Jesus. This is a story about the death and resurrection of Lazarus, and you're saying it doesn't lead to death. It has to lead to death for you to be able to do this. So obviously there's something else going on here, and that's what it is. He's, yeah, it leads to a temporary death and then a resurrection, which then gives me glory. Okay, good. Well, isn't there not a Greek word for permanent death or temporary death or there's some other death? There's not an adjective for death? There's death. Death. Do we not know how to use an adjective for it, the Greeks, before well, it? It would have been helpful, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Accordingly, verse 5, accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Giving him time to die. Exactly. Here the, yeah, here the word in verse 5 is agape. So it goes from phileo to saying, accordingly, though Jesus agaped Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Agape would be stronger. Which right? is stronger than simply phileo. Yeah. So the reference was, uh, Jesus, the one whom you phileoed, and he goes, oh, yeah, that's true, but this is not going to lead to death. It's going to lead to my glory, and so we're going to stay here for two more days, even though I love them, agape them. Hmm. Even though he's mostly dead. <laughs> that's like being partially pregnant. Yeah, right. We've got to wait until he's finished. Um, I find it interesting, a new international in... Uh, verse 4 said, this sickness will, will not end in death. Will not end in death? Yes. interesting. That's an interesting way of articulating. That will not end in death. Meaning that the death isn't the end. There is something yet to come. That's an interesting way of putting yeah. that. That yeah. it's interpretive. It's 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 an interesting uh, trick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this one says it is not unto death. Uh, not unto, unto death. death eh? Yeah, yeah, the same basic idea. Wow. Mm. Verse seven. Then after this, he said to the disciples, "Let us go to to Judea again." All right, right there, we've got an issue. Because if the site of the baptism is down there on the Jordan River, uh, adjacent to Jericho, guess where that is? That's Judea. Mm -hmm. So in, in truth, they, that can't be where he is. He's outside of Judea. Right. To go to Judea, he's outside of Judea. And given how long it takes for him to get there, it has to be probably on the southern end of Galilee, 
on the shore or near the Jordan River, where the Jordan River comes out of the Sea of Galilee. So is this, uh, I can't follow, is this an in, internal inconsistency with No, John? this is an inconsistency of where Bethany beyond the Jordan is. The question has long been, we covered this early, the question has long been, where does John say the baptisms take place? So John says the baptisms take place at Bethany beyond the Jordan. There's the question, that doesn't describe where Bethany is. Bethany is a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, up in the mountains, 15 miles and 2,000 feet up from uh, the Jordan River. So was there another Bethany? Well, there were multiple occasions where there were other cities with the same name. There was a Bethlehem up in uh, the Galilee area. So, so Bethany beyond the Jordan, the idea that there could be another Bethany, i.e. one on the other side of the Jordan River and up close to the Sea of Galilee is not impossible. And the speculation has long been that that is where it occurred, which would also coordinate, to some degree at least, with what the synoptics seem to indicate that the baptisms took place just south of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's been a lot of debate about that and there's no consistent response or resolution to the problem of where the baptisms took place. But this seems to say that when Jesus says, let's go to Judea, he's outside of Judea, which would be up in Galilee, or possibly even further east out in the Transjordan. But that's not anywhere close to the Jordan River. So, yes. And, and no. you, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and can this be confirmed by trade routes? Probably, but I'm, I don't know. Um, Why? Because you have one? Uh, no, um, but the Bethany that I'm looking at would That's not afford uh, a two-day journey. This is a much longer <laughs> journey than that. Uh, yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. And, and it's not at a trade route area. So when we, we, when we came out of Jerusalem, heading down to go to Masada, we passed through the tunnel that they've carved through Mount Scopus. And when we came out the other side, our guide pointed up to the mountaintops just outside of the city of Jerusalem, just the other side of Mount Scopus and to the south there. And she says, that's Bethany. It's right there. It's, it's within two miles of the old city of Jerusalem. It was, yeah. it was immediately visible once we came out of that tunnel. That's Bethany. That's 2,000 feet up from the Jordan River and 15 miles away. Which, 15 miles is 15 miles, but that's not a, that's not two days trip or four days trip or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, where was he, where had he gone to? And the speculation is, is that he went to here, not, not down there. And there's plenty of people who have concluded that the gospel writers were writing in the places they did at the time they did just really didn't have a very good idea of the geography. You're going, well, what do they mean by that? And that's why church fathers speculated there was another Bethany. And there are ruins that have never been identified on the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee across the Jordan River from the tradition, one of the traditional baptism sites that could very easily be identified as something that could be called a Bethany beyond the Jordan, but we don't have a place name for it. In no records do we have a place name, but it dates to the right period. Um, we don't know. We simply don't know. But it's, it, this seems to indicate it's some distance. I don't want to get bogged down in this simply to say that let us go to Judea again means he's out. Yeah. And notice he yeah. now has his disciples. His disciples yeah. weren't with him while he was in Jerusalem. And this past time, except for that one instance when they appeared to ask the question about why this guy was born blind. Yeah. And we don't know if it is his normal disciples or is it some other disciples he's picked up because none of them are identified. But now we're going to have some of the disciples identified. So we know this is part of the 12 that we're going to have here. So they kind of disappeared for several chapters and now they're back. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. 
Oh. Yeah, exactly. Chinese yeah. fortune cookie yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Confucius says. I mean, right, exactly. I'm serious. Pluck that out of there, and it, it's it's a, it's a nice aphorism. But what does it have to do with this statement here about uh, you know? Are you sure you want to go there, Jesus? They were just trying to stone you. They were just trying to kill you. Are you sure you want to go there? And he says, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? You know, the day's kind of split in half, day and night. Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. Those, but those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. What might he be meaning? Well, he's, he's condemning the Jews who don't have the light. Yeah, well, that's always that's, that's got it. Yeah, that's that's endemic in John's gospel. Um, yeah. uh, it, you could you could interpret it thusly: I walk in the light because I am the light. Therefore, I'm not going to stumble. I'm not going to be right. killed. It's not my time to die. Right. I, I can put on the cloak of invisibility, and no one can kill me. I can get out from around where the crowds are trying to to stone me. There's nothing that can hit me. I'm not going to stumble in this. Those people who walk around in darkness, them Jews, as John would say here, them <laughs> Jews, they're stumbling around in the darkness. They can't hit the broadside of a barn because they can't see it. So don't worry about me. They're staggering around in this world because they don't... They, they don't they're staggering around in their spiritual darkness, just as it said in the preceding yeah. chapter. Uh, they are, he said, you're blind. And he says, we're not blind, are we? You, well, yes, you yes. most certainly are. You're living in darkness. You haven't admit, admitted that I am... The Messiah, you, 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 you claim to have sight, and then you prove you don't. Of course you're in darkness, and that theme is kind of being continued here. It's kind of what he means, although it's still it's, well, it's, it's slippery. It, it must have been a, a, a cherished saying. There are Semitic put it in isms here, you know. in here that indicate that this is actually probably a quote straight from the Aramaic been translated into Greek. There's some weird usages of the Greek here that indicate betray. There are several in this chapter, by the way, that betray the Aramaic underpinnings of the saying. So they would say this, and then the meaning of it would be simply obvious to, to people who are hearing, them, hearing it. After saying this, verse 11, after saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. Jesus is the alarm clock. <clears throat> the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Aha. Uh -huh. You know, he just took too much Somonex, I guess. Mm -hmm. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ye of little faith, Thomas. You know, they're expecting Jesus to get stoned here. He's heading back into the territory of them Jews. and. So he's going to run the risk of getting stoned, and he actually believes that it's possible that Jesus could die. Of course, he wasn't present in these earlier stories where Jesus is in the middle of the, of the temple, and they're picking up rocks to throw at him, and then suddenly he's gone. So he doesn't really have that experience. Nevertheless, um, he seems to think that that can happen, where Jesus is not concerned with that. It's just simply, well, he's dead. We need to go. It sounds to me like there was some kind of discussion of, the results of martyrdom and whether you're sleeping or dying or whatever. I mean, what other purpose is there to this, all of a sudden talking about is he sleep? Is it sleep or is it death? Well, sleep is a euphemism both that we got from from the biblical usage and from the therefore from the Semitic Aramaic usages for death. It's a euphemism, <laughs> and we but get I it mean, from there. There must be some reason that to put it in here. It doesn't doesn't move the story forward at all. It no, no, sir. Somebody must have brought it up, you know. It doesn't, other than, other than to say that sleep, you usually wake up from sleeping. And Lazarus is going to wake up from this sleep, even though it's a death sleep. 
he's, a, he's dead, he's going to wake again because he's going to be raised. So that, and that's actually part of the basis behind the idea of sleep as a euphemism for death. It softens the blow of death, but it also indicates there's something beyond the death. Well, he's already told them earlier here that it's not going to result in death. Yeah. So they're not thinking when he talks From sleep. Oh, he's death. just he's no, just asleep. Jesus, by the time you get there, he will have awakened. Why do you need to go? But oh. I, I yeah, agree with exactly. Pete because if you look at verse thirteen, can we believe you? And I'm going to do it in King Jimmy. Please. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he had spoken of taking the rest of sleep. Merely sleeping. Yeah. And but that's kind of an interject. The whole verse is an interjection. And, and I think you're right. Well, or, trying to or, or it could be that somebody had questioned the credibility of Lazarus. Yeah. Death. This is. So sure. This oh, is to he make, didn't really die. He was yeah. just very sick. This is to make the reader know that he's really dead. And this is going to be a big miracle. Yeah. It also, illustrates the, the stupidity, it also illustrates the stupidity of the disciples. They're Once always again, missing the point. In remember? Us. Yeah. In the, in, the, in, the, in the synoptics, they're always, always missing the yeah. point of the parables. They're always missing the point here. Thomas is missing the point and saying, let's go with him so we can also die. Well, I think that's pretty smart. He well, wants to be resurrected by Jesus. What's wrong with that? But he, they don't know he's going to do it. Sure they do. That's what it, he's Thomas told them, is saying. Is if what he's, you say is true. he's told them, but they don't get it. <laughs> they don't get it. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That ought to nail it down pretty good. Yeah, it really ought to. Now, it's going to get nailed down even better in just a minute. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away. The Greek actually is 15 stadia. That's about two miles. And that's accurate, and that's correct. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. Well, earlier in the John's Gospel, the Jews is a negative reference, you know, because when it's talk, they're talked about, it's usually used in a negative reference, although from time to time there is a some of them who are okay. Well, here they've come to console Martha and Mary about their brother. That's a good Jew, so. Okay, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I, Not all of them. <laughs> before we go on, I've got to be clear on this. All right. All right. So Thomas the Twins said, okay, well, let's go with Jesus mm -hmm. so that we may die with him. So they mean so that we, he, Jesus is going to be killed once he goes there? That's the reference to where they said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? And Thomas totally missed the entire conversation and the, this, the, the Confucius remark there by Jesus and says, let's go with him so we can also die with him. And be martyrs. Okay. And be martyrs, exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry, but I, okay. I thought, okay, why do you want to be like Lazarus and be dead? No, no, it's not Lazarus. It's, yeah. it's Jesus. Jesus. Let's go die with Jesus. Okay. That's part of that Got doubting it. Thomas bit. Jesus, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Well, that's actually a statement of faith right there. Because, yeah. because you know, had Jesus been there, then Jesus would have healed him. So that, that is a statement of faith. So she gets a check, okay? She gets another but, check. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Even more. That's another check. And actually it gets a Two plus yeah, with a, a smiley one. face. Even. Yeah, that's a big one. All right. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. All right, Martha said that's a, that, and that is in totally in, in 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 accordance with Pharisaic understanding of what's going to happen. Jesus is being a good Pharisee here, and Martha's going to prove she's a good Pharisee. Martha said to him, "I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day." And there she gets a minus <laughs> <laughs> because her faith is in the last day resurrection, which is a good Jewish Pharisaic expectation. 
Jesus said to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. She didn't quite answer the question, did no. she? She did and she didn't. Yes, Lord, I believe, and she, she should have put a period right there. Yes, Lord, <laughs> I believe, period, end of paragraph. But no, she continues that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. She gets a check for that because that is true, but it's a weak affirmation saying that she believes in what he just said. Now let's look at what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Will never die? Never. What the hell does that mean? Die. Never die permanently. You see, they keep forgetting the adjective. Never. Well, but, but, they, but, there's, never. but he says, never. Will, never. will live, you know, and then will never yeah, that's, die. That's a, one of the Even though they die, will live. Will live and will never die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's fascinating. Now, yeah, we've like all that. heard this many, many times. Every time you go to a Christian funeral, that is in the opening sentences. and has been in the opening sentences of funerals going back at least 1,700 years. I begin every funeral with, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Straight out of the King Jimmy. And that is, those, that is an affirmation of Jesus and who Jesus is. And it's what he's saying about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who faith, pistuo, those who faith in me, place their trust in me, place their active belief in me, even though they die, physically, will live. And everyone who lives and believes, fades in me, will never die eternally. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just amplified it a little bit. Well, but, but, but that's if, the basic idea. But if, if that's what it means, then it is not a contradiction to what Martha says that Rise again on the resurrection. Yeah, on the last day. but it's not the last day they're waiting for. Yeah, because I am the resurrection. Yeah, he's saying I already know. I am the life. The she, resurrection she is here. Now, the resurrection, Martha, is standing in front of you. Right. It's not yet to come. It's right here today, dear. You just asked. She just asked him if he. She's told him that he can ask the father and. Get yeah, precisely. Life. When she got the when she got that check got plus there, but there. even now I know that God will give up. you whatever you ask of him. Absolutely right. And then she says, Yes, I believe in the resurrection. The resurrection. I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And what he's telling her is, I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait for the last day for this. The resurrection is now. That's why I only gave her a minus and not a sad face. <laughs> she gets a small minus there, but then she gets, a, she gets another check down here when she says, I believe. And she's not wrong with the rest of it. It's just that her focus is not really on what he says above it. I'm not giving her a hard time. I'm simply saying that her focus is more on the fact that her brother is dead and she wishes he wasn't. And she has faith that he won't be again, and that's good. And Jesus is saying he ain't going to be dead in just a few minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not at the end. I mean, we're talking like once I can get over there. But what she was talking about was a physical resurrection on the last day. Yeah. And is that what Jesus is talking about? Is right here. Physical in the context. Now? In the context of the story. Yeah. Now yeah, Lazarus not, gets one, but not the rest of us don't. Not. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you got it early. That's all. Let's finish the story, and then we'll talk a little more about this, because I want to draw a connection here uh, with something else. <sighs> Verse 28, when she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary 
and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Well, I guess they left that part out. Hmm. Uh, and when she heard it, she got up and quickly got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to go to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet. You know, she does a lot of that. <laughs> Sitting at his feet to learn, that kind of stuff. She knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's kind of like, okay, is there an echo here? <laughs> That's kind of what Martha said. Yeah. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply Move. I want your readings on verse 33 there where it says, He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. What do you add to the NIV? He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Okay. Other rendering? What does the King Jimmy say? Verse 33, that where it says, what? That he was When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He groaned in Boy, the spirit. Nice. He moaned almost. Mm -hmm. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Uh, any other renderings? Verse 33. Uh, the Amplified said, reads, When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews who came with her also sobbing, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In brackets, he chafed in spirit and sighed and was disturbed. That's the amplified for you. <laughs> and sighed. It's yeah. almost like mine. Um, the wording here is uh, like shuddered and moved with deepest emotion. The Greek rendering here is of an Aramaic idiom which includes a significant emotional, almost like angry or painful, um, you could use the word scrown, which is a scream and a groan done together. He scroned. It, 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 he, he's filled with a deep emotional kind of response. Yeah, they're saying, well, they're saying um, their interpretation yeah. in the NIV both times the word denotes a loud expression of grief. That is wailing, troubled, wailing. Yeah, troubled. wailing, troubled. Loud expression, wailing, troubled. That's why I use the word scroned. Because yeah. it's a scream and a groan done with great emphasis. And that's precisely what this is. It is an Ara the phrasing here in Greek is a translation of an Aramaic idiom that is used for that concept. Wailing at a tomb. Wailing at a tomb with deep emotional out of your gut tears from deep within and it in, indicates even a degree of anger even a degree of indignation yeah right. come on people haven't i told you what <laughs> i am the resurrection i'm here he ain't gonna be dead long exactly get it's, on board and, and it's emotional oh, it's deep it's not intellectual, it's entirely within, <laughs> and it kind of out of him. It's, so it's, it's a scroll. It's in response to the situation and not the fact that his best friend is dead? No, it's a response to them, okay. exactly what it to says here. Again. Okay. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, I mean, they're, they're crying for Lazarus and for her grief. Yeah. He was greatly disturbed in spirit okay. and deeply moved. He's grown deep down inside. Yeah. But then it says he, he wept, so that sort of kind of takes it away from the indignation. Yes. He said, where have they laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. That's interesting. Come and see. Lord, come and see. That's how he begins his ministry. Way back in chapter 1, when the disciples are following him, he says, come and see. Here they're telling him, come and see. Hmm. Come and see our nice deepest play. agony, our death, just as you invited us to come and see eternal life. 
That's, that's, a, that's a preaching moment. I could go on that forever. <laughs> Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. Or as the King James says, Jesus, Jesus wept. Number 35. That's for me. That's the one I memorized. <laughs> that's the only one you memorized? <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> in Greek, it is actually only two words in a particle. Itakurisen ha Jesus, which literally means he wept the Jesus. And you use the definite article often in, in, in Greek when we wouldn't, you often use it against uh, with a proper name. And so it's usually just, it just doesn't sit there. It, it's part of the word. And so it's really only a two word response, just like in the King Jimmy, Jesus wept. Now, did he weep again? Is this like a scrum weep, or is this, was he weeping for laughter? It's Lazarus a basic or word that situation? means to cry tears. He wept. So why, what was he weapon about? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Well, Jesus well, began that, to weep. That's the context, for, or adds context to the, to the It makes it deeper, disturbing. but what is he it weeping about? It illustrates that he shares our, shares deepest, it, yeah. our deepest sorrow. The idea, I mean, think about it. How, what is the best way to console someone whose loved one has died? Is it to try to fix things? Our society today, we're always trying to fix stuff. I'm upset with them. No, it's to cry with them. Mm -hmm. It's to mourn with them. It's to weep with them. I mean, they had it right back in Scotland when they would have wakes. And you sit around and you talk about the loved one and you cry about their death and you drink toasts to them. I mean, come on. I love that tradition. And not just because you drink toast to them, but you spend time together remembering them positively and also mournful for their loss, sharing tears together. And that's what's going on here. These Jews are sharing tears with Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus, and Jesus is joining in in the sharing. Jesus experiences our sorrow, our, our true sorrow at death. He's not divorced from it. In John's Gospel, which always has Jesus so highly divine, with all the front-loading of all those affirmations, here we have a little insight into humanity. And he's apparently forgotten that he waited two days before he left to go get this guy. But he waited for two days in order to make sure he'd in be order, dead. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I ought to make sure he's dead so I don't get there and he's still alive and it just becomes a healing and not a resurrection. He has to be dead, room so temperature or below. Okay, let's keep going. Um, before we do, yes. we do that question, and that is, in earlier you said one of the words was philos, brotherly mm -hmm. love. Right. And then the other one was agape. In agape love is one of the qualities, sorrow. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because of love, you can feel sorrow. It's also there in phileo, but it's, it's weaker. And... While it, some people would say it's in eros, actually there it's agony. That makes sense. Which is different. It's a physical conception there. They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And there they use, <laughs> there they use phileo. Ephileia. Great. See how he, he liked him. <laughs> nice going Jews. Uh, well, well. <laughs> See how he loved him. But some of them said, oh gosh, there always has to be somebody who's a spoil sport. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? That's a good question. That was a point. Good question. But it's probably Thomas again. That's the point of actually of this whole thing. Just as he opened the eyes of the blind man who was blind, and therefore metaphorically opens our spiritual blindness, so also he raises this man who is dead, and thereby raises us to spiritual life. Let's, let's keep going. Instead of keep instead of preventing us. Yeah. Then Jesus, then Jesus again greatly disturbed, and that's the same word that's used here, scroning within, <laughs> came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. When we were in Israel on the trip, we were up on um, Mount Carmel, and our guide had the bus slow down, and they pointed out right there on the road 
tombs that had been unearthed by the making of the road. And they all had little, round, little square doors with these round discs that you'd roll over in front of it. And these are temporary graves for the purpose of the bodies desiccating. They put a body in there, it desiccates, they take the bones out, put them in a box, and put them on a shelf. They put the name of the person on it. That box is called an ossuary. That was the process. When Jesus was buried, he was buried in a new tomb that had been cut out of rock for Joseph of Arimathea. We'll read this a little later on. We read about it in the synoptics that he had made for himself for the purpose of his body desiccating so they could be put into a ossuary. And I'm, I'm convinced that was the same reason why he had that done for Jesus. So, so that the Jesus' body could desiccate sure. and the bones could go in a box. So if you could afford to, you would desiccate where nobody else's Bed. Yeah, yeah. But then your family could rent it out after yes. your bones are removed. Or sure. use it themselves. Or use it for them. yeah. Keep it for the next one. Oh, yeah. uh, how big, I don't want to get too mundane, but how big were these discs that you were looking at from the bus on the road? Not that large mm-hmm. and round. So and like I could kick it and knock it out? You could roll it. It wouldn't be that difficult to roll, but but you'd have to have some muscle power. Even a woman yeah. possibly could roll it. Uh, it would have take been a few, hard. It'd take a few women. Yeah, at least. So it was a thick stone. It's yes. thick about, leaden. About yeah. like that. It, and made out of solid rock. Like I'd a manhole. Easily two to five hundred pounds. Oh, yeah. Easily. But it would roll. So a couple of guys could roll it, uh, or several women could roll it. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, were they perfectly round? I mean, were they rollable? Or they were rollable. They weren't perfect, but they were close. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll bring pictures. I got pictures. In fact, they're on my website, but you can see them. Um, then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days, or as the King Jimmy says, he stinketh. He's thinking. Good old King James. Well, it gets the point across. He's Boy, dead. Yeah. He's rotting now. Mm-hmm. Jesus said to her, "Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God?" So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward, and said, "Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me." But I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. <laughs> uh, Father, uh, thank you for hearing me, and I'm saying this because they're listening. Right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> when he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And everybody would be running away because it was the mummy. The mummy is exactly <laughs> the picture. It's a mummy. <laughs> the mummy's ghost. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, uh, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What's the significance of him with all this wonderful miracle and putting in neon lights as prayer to God so everybody could hear it? Mm-hmm. What's the significance of him having them asking them to take away the stone, and they took away the stone? What's that? What's there's got to be a reason for that? Take a look at take a look at the the wording right around it. They said, "Lord," Martha says, "Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead four days." And Jesus said to her, "Did not tell? Did not? Did not? Did I not tell you that if you believed, uh-huh. if you faithed, you would see the glory of God?" So they took away the stone. That is an act of faith. Okay, we'll do what you told us to do. Even though it goes contrary to what our noses are telling us, we'll do it. Let's finish the story. Because then I want a couple of things I want to point out. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. Tales. Mm-hmm. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Oh, no. That's a stretch. Well... <laughs> 
He's, he, they're going to believe in him. They're going to follow him as the Messiah. The Messiah's job is to throw out the Romans. That's what's going to happen. And then they're going to come and they're going to destroy the temple. Mm. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Well, that's interesting. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. Wow. And look at verse 52. Yeah. And not for the nation only, but to gather into the into one, the dispersed children of God. Remember we talked about the other sheep in the prior chapter with the, the, the sheep, the, the, the parable of the sheep, and then he said, I have other sheep, not part of this particular fold, and they'll come. Well, yeah, that's, is this John again, or is this that? Yeah. I, mean, I don't remember this because yeah, I have the language is, anywhere this else. Is, this is John again. Okay. He has Caiaphas doing it. Yep, yeah, he puts it in Caiaphas's lips. So that's pretty good. Here's the guy who's going to be who's going to be responsible for for getting Jesus before Pilate and getting the death sentence enacted, actually speaking under prophet on prophetic control of the spirit. Wow. Nice Jesus, let's finish this part. Jesus therefore there Jesus therefore no longer walked about openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness and he remained there with the disciples and that's where we're going to stop now a couple of things there's a connection that has been identified by scholars between this story and the story of Lazarus found in Luke and it's, it's an interesting connection if you go to Luke 16 you can see it Beginning around verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. We've heard this many times from God's spell. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have. Um, and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Uh, anyway, he dies. He dies, and he goes to be with Abraham. And the man, the rich man, also dies, and he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And he said, I'm going to skip down to verse, verse, skipping down to verse 27. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. It's a little bit of a coincidence, maybe too much of a coincidence, Mm -hmm. that the one whom the rich man wanted to go warn his brothers by being raised from the dead to warn them about this. His name Lazarus, <laughs> who Jesus raises from the dead over in John. There's been speculation that, well, that this served as the basis behind which the story of the raising of Lazarus came about in John's gospel. And there's been speculation that the story of the raising of Lazarus serves as the inspiration for this parable. Which is it? The chicken or the egg kind of thing. The cart before the horse. Which is it? Well, many scholars, including Raymond E. Brown, who wrote the Anchor Bible Commentary on the Gospel of John, speculates that the story about Jesus raising Lazarus is very early indeed. Part of the earliest layer of the Johannine tradition. Because within it, they've located multiple examples of Semitic isms, i.e., Aramaic turns of phrase that have been translated woodenly into Greek that we find elsewhere, both in the New Testament and also in Greek texts like Josephus, 
who is converting Jewish uh, literature into Greek, taking oral traditions and converting those into Greek straight from Aramaic. There are strong Aramaic cues in the story in John's Gospel, which gives people like Brown and others, like Fitzmaier and a few others, reasons to suspect that in fact what we have in John's Gospel, in the core of this story of the raising of Lazarus, a very, very, very early story, which wasn't included in any of the other Gospels, other than maybe hinted at in the utilization of the name Lazarus here. Lazarus is a, is a short form for Eliezer, by the way, in, in Hebrew. So it's a common name, but the idea that you would have this concept of resurrection attached to that name is fascinating and a little too much of a coincidence. Now, I do, have, the, do the other Gospels have instances of raising from the dead? Oh, just the several. Several. There's, um, there are healings, and then there are resurrections. Yeah, There's the resurrection uh, of Jairus' daughter in Mark uh, chapter 5, verses 22 through 43. There are references to resurrections in chapter 11 of Matthew, yeah. verse 5. And there's a resurrection uh, of the raising of the son of the widow of Nain in Luke. So, I mean, there's, there are multiple references to Jesus raising people. It well, that's seems, not a lot, though. I mean, no, but, the, but there's one in each of the Gospels. Yeah, the, uh, there's one in each of the Gospels, at least. So they each have their own? Each has their own, and there have been some connections between them that have been drawn. The basic idea, though, is Jesus raised somebody from the dead. And this is John's version of it. And then in Luke, there is this parable where someone is talked about being, you know, raise him so he can go warn. And it won't even believe, even if someone raises from the dead, happens to be a man that, that, that the rich man wanted to have raised to do. It happens to be one that Jesus does actually raise over in John, or at least the name of one, that not necessarily the same a, person. I'm presuming that was... She really had a brother, and Mary had a brother named Lazarus. Okay, that's that the other thing. There's actually some fascinating archaeological evidence on this one, and, and it's in here, and I followed it up online. Biblical Archaeology Review, issue number 9 from 1946, page 18, gives photographs and text concerning archaeological digs done in and around Bethany. In a tomb complex just outside of Bethany, there is a tomb belonging to Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Hmm. And it identifies the ossuaries inside, all dating from the first century, uh, identify them as brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Lazarus is, list, is named on one ossuary, brother of Mary and Martha. Mary is listed on an ossuary, sister of Lazarus and Martha, and Martha is listed on an ossuary sister of Lazarus and Mary and the idea that it could that that could be the case and have those three names in Bethany from the first century seems highly unlikely in the synoptics Bethany is the place where Jesus is said to go and stay when he's near Jerusalem in John's gospel he goes and stays in Bethany when he's near Jerusalem at least at this point and he stays, and obviously at the very beginning of chapter 11, this is a place he's been before. These are people he knows. He stayed with them before. They love him. Mary and Martha know him. Lazarus is one whom Jesus loves. So it's, it's a relationship that has existed. And there seems to be archaeological evidence in, these, in this tomb, in these ossuaries, that in fact uh, they lived there. There was a family that lived there. Now, you, know, you might make arguments, well, what about them? I mean, what do we know about them? Nothing other than that and what we have here and over in Luke. They're mentioned in Luke and they're mentioned here. And that's it. You Lazarus isn't mentioned in Luke, by the way. Only Mary and Martha. You mentioned last week that the, the, this chapter of John kind of changes gears. You know, the, and up heretofore, he has not been particularly interested in recounting history or you know actual events he seems to be interested in using events or stories to make points points I am. sermons you know yeah, the, sermons and, and exactly. here he kind of try i mean this is a great deal of detail about one little event so to speak the uh, yeah and he seems to try to relate it to resurrection you know, this is the beginning of the whole sequence that ends with jesus's resurrection you know, the uh, 
This is the beginning of the end of the gospel. Interesting, we're only about halfway through. This is yeah. the beginning of the end of the gospel. This because is, from now on out, everything points towards his death and resurrection. This is a call. Even right? his teachings all deal with that to some degree. See, but that, that's a narrative use of it, you know. Yeah. Not, not, a, not a preaching use of it, you know. They, exactly. This is know, the narrative. The question is, does this, does this some way illustrate resurrection? Yes. Or is, it, or is it just kind of tacked on to okay. some statements about religion? Here is Raymond Brown on this exact subject. This is from the Anchor Bible <laughs> nice lead in. commentary. Thank you. That's perfect. Much better. Say goodnight, Gracie. I had, to, I had to beg him during first session. Yeah, that's good. We may notice he's writing here on page 430 in his commentary on the Gospel of John in the Anchor Bible commentary series. We may notice one final effect that the present sequence of the Gospel has produced. Produced. In 1137, the Jews associate the healing of the blind man, back in chapter 9, with the Lazarus story, and we suspect that the writer intended such an association. There are some interesting parallels in format between the two stories. In chapter 9, the healing of the blind man was a dramatization of the theme of Jesus as the light of the world. Remember that? Yeah. The, rising of, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 is a dramatization of the theme of Jesus as the life. And you see uh, that you see that stated in specifically Jesus telling us that in chapter 11 verse 25. The two themes of light and life were mingled in the prologue, chapter 1, in describing the relationship of the word to people. See chapter 1 verse 4. Just as the word gave life and light to men in the creation, so Jesus, the incarnate word, gives light and life to people in his ministry as signs of the eternal life that he gives through enlightenment gained from his teaching and from living within the family of faith, within the community. So in other words, John, the author of the gospel, intends there to be a connection here. In chapter 9, uh, the connection with the uh, story of the man born blind who is healed. And here in chapter 11, the story of the man who has died whom Jesus raises. Both of them are used to illustrate that Jesus gives us spiritual sight and give, Jesus gives us spiritual life. Just as Jesus brought physical sight to the man and physical life to the dead man Lazarus, so also Jesus brings spiritual sight to those who are blind and spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. And that's the point of, of the juxtaposition of the resurrection at the end of the world with time, the resurrection. Precisely. Too often what, what you're now? focusing in on what's to come and not on what's here now with Jesus. Just as we do it today, they did it then. They focused on the hereafter, the sweet by and by. And not so much on the fact that we've got Jesus right here, right now with us today. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am the resurrection. You don't have to wait for this in the end. You've got it right here and right now. Who was that that was having the trouble with Jesus coming on Tuesday? Paul. Exactly. Always expecting Jesus come next Tuesday. Yeah. Well, he's already here, Paul, according to And him. Paul would affirm that. Paul held that now and not yet intention. He would say, yes, Jesus is coming next week, or whenever, but soon. And yes, Jesus is already here. That tension between the now and the not yet. Just as the tension, the kingdom of God is both still to come and is already here amongst us. And we know that whatever eternal life meant well, it didn't work for Lazarus because we found his usher. <laughs> well, he was raised from the dead temporarily. But the, but, the, but the illustration and the metaphor is nevertheless still there. Do I believe that those three ossuaries reference these, the, these exact people? I think it probably, they are, if not, the, if not actually, they are the template upon which the story is based. Three very famous people whom, who lived in Bethany with whom Jesus stayed on multiple occasions. Now, we're not told about the other multiple occasions in John's Gospel yet, but... It's obvious at the beginning of chapter 11 that they have had connections before. Because when he gets there, they know him. 
and he loves Lazarus, and Lazarus is dead now. And Mary and Martha know him. So it seems as though Luke has mislocated in his version of Mary and Martha, mislocated them up to Galilee, whereas in fact they lived in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Are there any other uh, the other gospels other than the apostle to whom he loved that was running with no clothes or whatever? Yeah. Is there well, anybody well, that's mentioned? Mark. You're facing up Mark and John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Are there any other places where he loved somebody like this so much? I don't know. This the disciple whom Jesus loved, Lazarus here, his mother, a few other instances, but I, I'm. I'd have to look them up. It just doesn't, it seems like, I know he's probably, John or whichever John, or whichever layer this is, is utilizing this obviously. I think that we have in this chapter, the story of the healing is definitely the earliest layer because of all the Aramaicisms. The later additions are especially found in the, the setting of it when Jesus is off and he comes back. It's also located in this bit about the Sanhedrin. The response, not necessarily the negative response of some of the Jews who went off and tattled, that, that's a possibility. Because essentially, this becomes the reason why Jesus is put to death. Yeah. But that it has, that, that's very different, at least partially very different, from the synoptics, where it's everything yeah. that is the basis for re the reason why Jesus is put to death. Here, we have this as the principal reason. Um, I think that that's probably in a later a later accretion to the story, to to, to give it to, to give it a little bit of a segue, and then what's going to happen next. Well, it's pointing towards his death, and then I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Well, you have all this this detail about what was happening <laughs> in the meetings of the Sanhedrin. You know, John wow. probably wasn't there. How the heck did he come up with all that stuff? No, kidding. that's a good question. Um, and, 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 and this, the of him, this being the basis upon which he is then put to death, would also therefore be, and then he is raised. So this is the beginning of that strong pointing now. The, the gospel changes its basic structure and approach, as I said last time. And with this story, we begin the march towards the death and then the resurrection. And everything that comes in between, because there's a lot of teaching in here. I mean, in, in, in the synoptics, you got the Last Supper, and then bango, they, they sing a hymn, and then they go to Gethsemane. In John, there's teaching, 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 teaching. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of it. So lots of narrative, too. So and, and that takes some time. So, Yes? Um, I agree with Pete again. Uh, oh, no. If you go to... Back off, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Um, second sentence of um, 47. Uh, different, kind, different kinds of translations. One group was saying, what are we accomplishing? Pointing out that they've been trying to do something about this problem, Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Jewish boy that he sure. is, but gone wrong. And then um, New American Standard translates it as, uh, what are we doing? Amplified um, said, what are we to do? And then uh, King James says, what do we? Hmm. So hmm. is it they already knew about Jesus and knew he was a threat and they were trying to figure out some of the... Oh. Yeah, that actually works um, because at verse 47 in, in Brown's translation in his commentary, he says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together at the Sanhedrin, quote, What are we going to do, they said, now that this man is performing many signs? I mean, he's already been doing all this stuff, but now he's doing this. NIV says, What are we accomplishing? What are we accomplishing? Yeah. What are we getting done? In this. Because accomplishing means there's a plan. If we exactly. let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our holy place and our nation. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, think about it. They're expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans. So if Jesus is 
going to claim to be the Messiah and everybody's going to start following him, guess what? He's going to raise up an army of people. They're going to attack the Romans and the Romans are going to blow him away because we know he really can't be the Messiah because he's not one of us. And so... Oh, ye of little faith. Yeah. It's ironic that eventually that is almost exactly what happened. Oh, yeah, this is <laughs> exactly. Totally reading history. <laughs> That's right. That's the point. Isn't that sweet, actually? From, from 90 AD, looking back to 70 and before, I mean, this is obvious. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what, whether the other Gospels have this, this, this political aspect of, you know, we've got to keep the Romans happy, which is very explicit here and seems to be part of our understanding of what the... Jewish authorities were doing, but I don't know if it shows up in the other gospels. No, it doesn't. Clearly. Not like this. But they're trying That's to... ironic that John actually would reflect the political situation a heck of a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, than the rest of them. Well, somebody mentions here that not very lot. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's, read, let's finish the chapter. Verse 55. Mm-hmm. Now the Passover of the Jews was finished. Okay, now just a few minutes ago, back in the previous chapters, we had just gotten done with Hanukkah, the, the Feast of Dedication. Exactly. Well, now we're to Passover. That's several months later. Again, temporality, chronology is not that important (laughs) to John. Well, 54, though, could imply some passage of time. It could imply several months. Agreed. Agreed. But still, it's it's interesting. Most of Jesus' gospel in the synoptics takes place in Galilee. Most of Jesus' gospel in John takes place in and around Jerusalem. Mm. Most of the mm. ministry of Jesus mm. takes place in and around Jerusalem, and that is, is amazing. It's completely yeah. different. Okay, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. And were asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? Yes, and don't call me Shirley. (laughs) Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.